Faith is not a work, but it is a choice that you need to make because it is part of the moral will of God. And for you to say no to God and no to Jesus Christ is a moral decision that you will make with moral eternal consequences with it. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. There are a number of non-negotiables of the faith that all true Christians adhere to. Beyond that, there are some doctrinal issues that theologians have differing views on. One of these is the doctrine of election or predestination. In our study of the book of Romans, we are in chapter 8 now, and today we look at one verse, verse 29, which gives a hint as to what will be coming up in the following chapter. Let's join Pastor Brogy as he presents today's message entitled, God's Foreknowledge. Take the Word of God this morning, would you, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great epistle. I told you many, many weeks ago of Dr. Ralph Kuyper, who is one of the, I think, greatest Bible teachers in the 20th century. I had the chance to hear him as a new believer. I'd only been saved a couple years. He was in his late 80s and ready to go home to be with the Lord. He was an English Bible teacher at Conservative Baptist Seminary in Denver and associated with Donald Gray Barnhouse in Much, Much Ministry. And uh, before he died, or earlier in his life actually, he wrote a letter to 20 of the greatest Bible expositors that lived in that last century. Included in the list were men like Harry Ironside, Charles Fuller, Donald Gray Barnhouse, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he asked them all a single question. He said, if you were wrecked at sea and deserted on an island, and you could have only one page in all of the Word of God, if just one page of Scripture could float up to you, what page of Scripture would you like to have? As you know, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And seven out of 20 of those Bible teachers said they would like to have the eighth chapter of Romans. I think maybe you can understand why, having already spent five Sundays here in this great chapter. It's a chapter that is packed with truth, and it's certainly one of the best loved and best known chapters in the New Testament. The great German theologian in the 17th century, the father of pietism, his name was Philip Spinner, said this of Romans 8. He said, if Holy Scripture were a ring and the epistle to the Romans a precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. And I believe that. Now, if you were here last time, we studied verses 26 through 28, and we just touched on verse 29, and we're going to just touch on verse 29 again today. We're coming to some very deep theological waters today, and I'm afraid some of us might drown, but come back next week. I promise there'll be plenty of air. I was telling a young man in my office this week, I said, as a pastor, he was just 10 years old, I said, I have to teach brand new Christians. He had just received Christ. I said, on Sunday, you'll be three days old in the Lord. And I said, I'm going to have to teach older believers who've known Christ for 40 and 50 years. I said, I have to teach baby Christians and mature Christians. I said, it's like math. You have to know your numbers before you can add and subtract. You have to add and subtract before you can multiply and divide, before you can understand fractions, algebra, trigonometry, calculus. And I said, some Sunday mornings, I have to teach some people the numbers, and others, I have to teach calculus and everything in between, and I'm learning too. 
We're all learning together. We're all growing together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot of calculus in today's text is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) But there's something here for everyone if we have eyes to see and ears to listen. Now, I want to begin reading in verse 28. Next week, we'll look at verses 29 and 30 in their entirety. Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now you remember that there are three great sections to the book of Romans. The doctrinal section, 1 through 8, the national section 9 through 11, and the applicational or practical section, what we call chapters 12 through 16. And each section in turn divides into three parts. This particular section deals with three great doctrines. The doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification. So we're in the third part of the first section here of the book of Romans. And sanctification, of course, deals with that process by which God makes us, shapes us, conforms us, into the image of his son. Now that's the broad context. Let's zoom in on the immediate context. When you come to the last half of Romans 8, it just moves up and up like to the top of a mountain. And Paul, with a shout of victory, will conclude there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now we began this section last time in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. For who? to those who love God, speaking of believers, to those, and we saw it's not actually a verb, it's a noun, to those who are the called, as the King James puts it. He's speaking of a specific group of people, that God works everything together for good, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then in verses 29 and 30, the Apostle Paul elaborates on that purpose in which God is creating all things to work together for our good. And it's namely that we be conformed to the image of his Son, that Jesus might be first in all things. Now we're going to study five links in a golden chain of salvation. It starts with the word foreknown and it ends with the word glorified. And everyone is in a past tense because if one has happened, the last one will happen. It's a chain we will see next time that cannot be broken. But we're going to spend today just a whole message just in the first link. And next time we'll look at the next four. Because if you misunderstand the first link... And the first link is the point of controversy. Then you're going to misunderstand the next four that we are going to examine. And so I hope to ask and answer three simple questions this morning concerning the foreknowledge of God. And I hope you'll jot these down and maybe go home this week along with some of the verses I'm going to share with you and look them up and think about them. First question that we want to ask and answer, though it's simple, it's very complex. Does foreknowledge negate free will? Does the foreknowledge of God negate the free will of man? Again, the verse begins, for those whom he foreknew. The first link concerns the foreknowledge of God. Now, what does it mean for God to foreknow someone? Well, let me just say that there are a lot of people, at least since the time of John Calvin, who read a lot more into this verse than what I think most people should read into it and what most people around the world don't read into it. If you go and travel the world, and I've been to many, many countries of the world and meet God's people, and most of them 
do not believe what some of our brothers, and I call them brothers because they're brothers in Christ. Some of our brothers in Christ are called Calvinists, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And they love Christ, and we need them, and they are valuable to the body of Christ. There's so much against the church, though the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's so much against the church. We need each other, especially in this day, where it seems like everything that was once nailed down is coming unglued. But they read a lot more into this word prognosko, which means to foreknow. Now, the word is two Greek words blended together, as you can see here in the chart. The word gnosko means to know, and the word pro or pre means before. And so we rightly translate it in all of our English Bibles, foreknowledge. It simply means, as I hope to demonstrate from the Word of God today from many other passages, simply to know something ahead of time. Prior knowledge. We get our English word from the noun form of the word. The noun form is pro, not prognosco, but prognosis. You know what a prognosis is? It's a doctor who has advanced knowledge as to what course he thinks a disease might take. Now, please note, it does not say what God foreknew, but whom he foreknew. He's speaking here about people. Now, some people will say, well, if God knows in advance everyone who's going to be saved, then that takes away free will. No, it doesn't. If God didn't know everything, God would not be God. God knows in advance all those who receive Christ, but his knowing that in no way diminishes the free will of man. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now, what I just said about foreknowledge, prior knowledge, Calvinists would object to. You say, well, what is a Calvinist? Well, Calvinism, as it's called, is built after a man by the name of John Calvin. You can see his picture here. He was born in 1509. He died in 1564. He was one of the Protestant reformers, and we will meet him in heaven. He was a brother in Christ. And of course, John Calvin... And, and let me say Calvinism, we're just looking at a smidgen of it today. In fairness to those who call themselves Calvinists, it concerns far more than just the doctrine of election. When you ask someone today, are you a Calvinist? What you're saying is, do you believe in election or the popular use of the word predestination? That's what they're usually referring to. But Calvinism is a whole realm of teaching that encompasses every part of theology. But it's a word like the word charismatic today. When we use the word, we speak of a charismatic Christian. Well, I hope you're a charismatic Christian. Because all a charismatic Christian means is that God has given each born-again child of God a particular spiritual gift on their, on their conversion day. And you have one. But today we tend to use the term in reference to those who believe in things like speaking in tongues. And so the term has taken on a different meaning. It's like Reformed theology. When you speak of someone who says, well, they believe in Reformed theology, what they're typically saying is that they believe in the doctrines of John Calvin as it relates to election. But historically, that's not what the word meant. Historically, the Protestant reformers believed in things like the authority of the Bible, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the eternal retribution of lost people, the eternal bliss of saved people. Just the fundamentals of the faith is what the reformers taught. But today, the word tends to be used of a particular group of people. So it is with Calvinism. Now, we're just speaking about one tenet of Calvinism. It's called soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Soter means savior. 
Logos means a word or a thing. And so when we speak of soteriology, we're speaking about the the doctrine of salvation, what the Bible teaches about it. Pneumatology, pneumatos, spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Eschatology, last things, the doctrine of last things. So we're just talking about the doctrine of salvation. And we're going to talk about this doctrine as it relates to the way Christians think differently about it. Now, all true Christians believe salvation is only by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But how that transpires and unfolds is different for different people. And so you have people like John Calvin on one end of the spectrum. On the other end, you have people like Jacobus Arminius, sometimes called Jacob Arminius for short. He lived from 1560 to 1619. Now, a Calvinist taught that God's decision supersedes and precedes the free will of man. That God in eternity past, apart from nothing you have ever done or could do, decided who would go to heaven and who would go to hell. Where an Arminian, Jacobus Arminius, on the other end of the spectrum taught, no man's free will supersedes and precedes the choice of God. And so the Arminian would say, well, God sees that Joe Smo is going to become a Christian all by himself as an act of his own free will. And so in eternity past, God elects him or chooses him to be a member of the cult. Where the Calvinists would say at the other end of the spectrum, God first determined that Joe Smo would become a Christian. That because God first said yes to Joe, Joe says yes to God. But unless God had first said yes to Joe in deference to others that he did not say yes to, that Joe Schmo would never become a Christian. Now, you may be asking and thinking this morning, well, what are you, pastor? Are you Arminian or are you a Calvinist? I think there's degrees of truth in both and degrees of error in both. If you want to put a label on me, I'm a Calvinian, okay? I'm a Calvinian. Arminianism, as we will see, is wrong in this respect. Man cannot all by himself come to faith in Jesus Christ. God has to be the first mover. Man is not left with a spark of interest in the things of God, whereby apart from God, he can meet Christ. We will study this morning from Ephesians 2, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins, describing what we were like before we were saved. As dead as a corpse is, you are spiritually before you're saved. And just like a corpse has no ability to respond to any stimuli or make any decisions within himself as he lays in that coffin, so neither do you have an ability to come to God apart from God first moving. And so Arminianism is wrong and that God is the first mover. It's God who first loved us. We lo- he loved us ere we, before we knew him. We sing in that great hymn of the faith. But Calvinism is also an equal erroneous teaching as it relates to the doctrine of salvation in the area that concerns election. Because basically they say man is only free because God chose him to be free. And is that really free will at all? And so we're going to use this passage as a launching point to systematically think our way through both sides of these teachings. You're thinking people. 
You can determine for yourself what the Word of God says. So hold your finger here and turn back to the Gospel of John, if you will. John chapter 6 for just a moment. John 6. And we'll use this as a launching pad. And you might want to, in the margin of John 6 or on your bulletin, just jot down a number of different verses of Scripture uh, that we're going to refer to this morning that you might want to go home and study. John 6 deals with the bread of, cor- bread of life discourse. And, and Jesus makes this statement in verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now, I love this verse of Scripture because God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both taught and found in this verse. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. That's the doctrine of election, of God's choosing. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's free will. That's human responsibility. Now, it's a very important verse in the theological argument that rages today concerning election and free will. Some people put all of their eggs in the basket of God's choosing to the point where man's free will is basically obliterated. We call that Calvinism. Other people put all of their eggs in the basket of man's free will that he can make this decision independent of God's choosing. We call that Arminianism. Early on in my Christian life, people tried to persuade me of the Calvinist approach. And as I thought about it, it initially seemed right, but I saw that it was built more on logic than really on biblical truth. Now, Calvinists believe that God predetermines who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. And it's always, it's always been a minority view in the body of Christ. And if you go around the world, it's a minority view today, though in the United States in the last two decades, it's gained some refooting and some prominence once again. And so you will hear many Christians speak about it. Now, I know some of our brothers love lost souls who are Calvinists, but for the most part, in my humble opinion, their teaching is debilitating to missions and it's debilitating to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And we'll talk about that when we come to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. What I'm going to say today on election is just kind of an introduction to what we're going to study in great detail when we come to the ninth chapter, because the whole ninth chapter deals with the subject and really just a couple of words here in the eighth chapter. But I don't believe that the Bible teaches that God has predestined some to heaven and some to hell and that man has absolutely no say in it whatsoever. You might want to jot down this passage and put it in the margin next to verse 37. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Let me read it to you. Paul writes to Timothy and says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, please note, he does not say some men, but all men. In fact, when we come to verse 6, the Apostle Paul is going to remind us that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, in Calvinism, all doesn't mean all. And if you were with us in our study of Romans 5, the second half, we talked about the teaching that some ascribe to today that Jesus didn't die for all, as the hyper-Calvinist teaches, but he died and shed his blood only for the elect. They refer to a limited or to a particular atonement. And so all doesn't mean all in this verse. And I could go through every single verse I'm going to use today and give you the other side of it, but I don't have the time to do that. 
But if you want me to do that, I have dealt with that in a course we taught on Wednesday nights called the Doctrine of Salvation. And I went through all of the verses that the hyper-Calvinist uses either to argue that Jesus didn't die for all, or all the verses that they used to say that God chose some to go to heaven and chose others to go to hell. And with every verse that I'm going to quote, they have an explanation. And so when I read here that God desires all men to be saved, they say, well, all doesn't mean all. If God desires all to be saved and all aren't saved, then that means God isn't sovereign. And that God's sovereign will is somehow smushed, so they say it can't mean all. And so they interpret all men to mean all kinds of men. You know, kings and rulers and servants and all different kinds of people, but not all men. Well, again, I I think we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And I think when you think about the will of God in Scripture, you need to underscore in your thinking that there's a difference between the determinative will of God and the moral will of God. The determinative will of God are things that God is going to do, and you don't have any say in it. You didn't have any say in the fact that in six literal 24-hour days, God created the heavens and the earth. He did it, and He didn't consult you or me. And you don't have any say in the fact that someday God is going to speak this world out of existence, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3, and He's going to burn it with fire. And then in a moment's time, Revelation 21 teaches He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. He's not going to take six days to do it. He's going to do it in a split second. We have Christians today who are trying to bleed together science and Bible, and they say, well, this world can't be just six or 7,000 years old. It must be millions of years old. And we talked about that. But they don't have an explanation for the fact that in a moment's time, God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, God's going to do that. That's part of His determinative will, and everything in God's determinative will will be finished. But there's also God's moral will. And the scripture is clear that God's moral will is not always done. It's God's moral will for people not to murder, but people murder folks every day. That does not mean that God is frustrated or less than sovereign that people commit murder. It just indicates that God gives man a free will to choose. Jesus made this statement in Matthew 12, 50. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. The clear implication of that verse is not everyone chooses to do the will of God. And therefore, they can't be counted as true believers. Because as a mark and evidence and fruit of conversion, people want to do the will of God. That's a result of being saved. And so while man is free to choose the moral will of God, of course, he's not free to escape the consequences. But what I want you to see is that God's moral will is not automatically done. Man has a free will. And it's part of your free will because it's in the moral will of God. For Jesus said, for this is the will of the Father and the work of the Father that you believe in him whom he has sent. And Paul, before we were done again in Romans 16, will speak of what he said in the introductory chapter of the obedience of faith. Faith is not a work, but it is a choice that you need to make because it is part of the moral will of God. And for you to say no to God and no to Jesus Christ is a moral decision that you will make with moral eternal consequences with it. And so Paul says here that it's God's desire for men to come to a knowledge of the truth. And when he says he desires all men to be saved, he's not teaching universalism because clearly not all men are saved. 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way, the road is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. And so he underscored that many will not be saved. But neither is God's will frustrated when he says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved. The word desire is the word fellow, and it speaks of God's wish, God's wants, God's heart, God's delight. God delights in the salvation of souls. But salvation, Paul tells us, depends on the knowledge of the truth. And not all men have yet received that knowledge, and others have received that knowledge, and they've rejected that knowledge. And so, again, God's heart is not that people will perish, but that men will come to a knowledge of the truth. And it reminds us of what our mission is as believers and as a local assembly. We can't just be content with our salvation. We can't say, well, I'm saved and God is my Savior and the rest of the world can hang. No, God has commissioned us to go irrespective of your spiritual gift and whether or not you're called into uh, full-time ministry or not, we're all full-time ministers in that we have been entrusted with the gospel and we've been called to go. So, no, God wants all men to be saved. Now, there are people like Rob Bell who use this verse out of context and he teaches universalism. And he says, because God wants all men to be saved, in the end, all men will be saved. He teaches Love Wins. It's a best-selling book on the New York Times bestseller list right now. And this is a guy who pastors a so-called evangelical church of several thousand, seven or 8,000, though he just recently left it. And now he's into all kinds of wacko things, like homosexuality is being okay. Listen, we're living in strange times. The freshmen at one of our schools this year in South Carolina are required to read a book that is all about homosexual and lesbian relationships. It's the required reading. And then they're going to bring in a lecturer this year, who, the, the people who wrote the book, to lecture to our freshmen. We're living in strange days and we need to be praying for our youth as they go off to the university that God will put some steel on their spine and allow them to stand strong because what they are standing for is very unpopular in the day that we live in. Let me give you another verse, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all, A-double-L, to come to repentance. Well, the Calvinists would say, that's right, Pastor. God wants all to come to repentance, but they can't repent unless God first chooses them. Well, it is true that God has to first work in their heart because again, in Romans 3 and verse 11, it says, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. And so the Arminian is an error by teaching that man has a spark left in himself where he can respond to God independently of God. Jesus said it, couldn't say it any more plainly in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you have to ask, does God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit give all men an equal chance? We'll write down this verse, John 12 and verse 32, John 12, 32. There Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Again, all men, not just all kinds of men. Uh, John 16, verse 8, and he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world, and world means world. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. God's foreknowledge does not negate man's free will. 
And when we pick up in our study tomorrow, we'll ask and answer the question, how do foreknowledge and election intersect? Today's program is entitled God's Foreknowledge, and you can listen to it in its entirety by using the Search the Scriptures app with Carl Brogy, available from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a hard copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to it online at wagp.net. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in Romans 8 and search the scriptures.